Just like a Joe Montana spiral, WCScreens.com looks to make the purchase of your next screen print or embroidery job as smooth as possible. Wholesale prices, nationwide shipping, the gold standard of the industry. Check out my pal Tony and the rest of his team at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Imagine yourself as a college student. More specifically, a student at the University of Notre Dame. Alright, even more specifically, a student at the University of Notre Dame 150 years ago. That's right, we're going to launch into an immersive experience to see what it was like to be a student at your beloved Notre Dame in the year 1871. What was a typical day like? What were the distinctive features of campus then? Would it be the least bit recognizable to the Notre Dame football fan of today? Well, to that I say, buckle up your chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Welcome to this special 53rd edition of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and thank you for joining this most exciting installment of the show. As always, we are looking to push the envelope around here, and I have a special one for you today, which we will dive into like it's the wedge formation here in a moment. But if you haven't already, please give the last episode a listen. It was about current Irish wide receiver Avery Davis and his distinct, inspiring, and productive Notre Dame career. I was actually fortunate enough to hear from Avery's mother after the episode aired, and she expressed her gratitude for the episode, but I assured her that the pleasure was all mine, as Avery is one of my very favorite Irish players I have had the privilege to follow and watch, particularly here in the last several years. But unfortunately, after setting career highs in receptions, yards, yards per reception, and touchdowns over the first eight games of the 2021 season, Avery suffered a season-ending ACL tear to his knee. What a blow to the locker room where he is, as team captain this year, one of the unequivocal leaders. And if you're listening, Avery, please know that we're thinking of you, pal, and we're pulling for you. So, Yes, go give episode number 52 a listen called Avery Davis, the heart and soul of the Fighting Irish. So I do have a couple very special thank yous to give to some of my pals and the financial backers of this show. Around here, they are called the Consensus All-Americans, but I like to call them my very favorite sons of Aaron. These are Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Needless to say, and I do say it every single episode, this show does not keep going without these gentlemen. So a heartfelt thank you. Our 2021 season sponsor is WCScreens.com. As I mentioned earlier, they are the gold standard of the screen printing and embroidery industry. So visit their website. Again, WCScreens.com if you have any needs 
and a general want and desire for exemplary customer service. So if you or your business would like to become a sponsor of the show, hang out until show wrap, and I'll tell you all about it. So while this is a Notre Dame football podcast, it is also near equal part a history podcast. So how did the idea for this episode come about? Actually, kind of randomly. I was having a talk with my eight-year-old son, Grayson, one night as I was putting him down to bed. Now, if you have children around this age, or even if you're young enough to have read them yourself, you may remember the Magic Treehouse series. Essentially, a brother-sister combo named Jack and Annie, aided by their, you guessed it, Magic Treehouse, are transported across space and time to basically whatever book they are reading at the time, whatever the setting or context of that is. So, Jack and Annie get to experience history firsthand, as does the reader, kind of through the wide, unjaded, if you will, lens of the children. So Grayson really enjoys the books, and he quickly identified several in his school library that he wanted to tell me about, including one called Civil War on Sunday, and another called Revolutionary War on Wednesday, where the children vault through time to the 1860s and 1770s, respectively, and experience America during those particular times. But that got me thinking a little bit. And so I'll have to give it grace in the assist on this one. But let's just imagine for a second, or I guess for the next uh, 25 or so minutes, that it's 1871, 150 years ago, and you are a student at Notre Dame. What would that be like? While the show tends to work around the past almost exclusively, it does typically revolve around the football team. And even when lesser-known subjects are covered, they can typically be very quickly grounded or connected with more famous figures or football teams. So like, for instance, when we talked about center and first Native American in the program Tommy Yar, as we did back in episode 43, it was easy. He was not a well-known figure, but he was coached and recruited by Knut Rockne. So again, even if Yar was a bit of an unknown, context is very, very easily found. But uh, spoiler alert, there's no football team in 1871. So I wanted to devote this episode as something of an immersive experience for the listener. I guess kind of like what Jack and Annie get when they go on an adventure in the Magic Treehouse series. And I wanted to try to paint the clearest picture I could about what life was like for an average Notre Dame student about 150 years ago. What was campus like? What did it look like? What could one do for entertainment? History, well, it doesn't have to be a mystery. And for this episode, I used the student newspaper, bulletins, and catalogs from that particular school year very heavily. So without further ado, I give you Project 1871, right after this. In 1871, nearly three decades after the school's 1842 founding, there was approximately 425 students attending the University of Notre Dame. This was just a few years post-American Civil War, and 
Notre Dame was an institution that largely served students from the North. In fact, after glancing through the entire catalog of students that year, I was able to identify six students from Texas and 13 from Tennessee. And that was actually it. So less than 5% of the student population was from the South, or approximately 95% were from northern states. Not for nothing, there was also one student from Canada. So what does this tell us? Well, a few things, I suppose. But let's strive for a bit more context. In 1860, the year the conflict began, the university had at that time just a little under 200 students on the muster roll. And there were only four students from southern states, three from Louisiana and one from Virginia. So only a tick above 2% then. So this was a school, Notre Dame was a school in the north to educate northern children. And to this point, 1871, it kind of always had been. And you still see it quite often today in different forms, but sectionalism or the different customs, lifestyles, social structures, and political views differed between the two areas of the country, North and South. And unless you were a celebrated academic institution, of which Notre Dame was not at this time, most of your students probably came from your home state or the contiguous states. Case in point, in 1871, the vast majority of Notre Dame students came from Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan. Also playing a role was Notre Dame's distinct Catholicism. In the North, due to a much higher influx of immigrants, Catholicism was much, much more prevalent than it was in the South. And that was also kind of a defining characteristic between the two parts of the country. It can safely be assumed that many Southerners wouldn't want to send their children to be educated hundreds, if not thousands, of miles from home at a small Catholic institution. Oh, and for this exercise, if you aren't male, just pretend like you are for a little bit. The school actually wouldn't admit females until the 1970s. Though St. Mary's, situated about a mile from main campus, was most definitely there in 1871, and that would have been the option for females at the time. Now let's start at the very beginning. The admission application process for a student. Any prospective student would have to present themselves to whichever Notre Dame faculty member who was serving as the director of studies. Basically, you would meet with this person and you would be judged on two fronts, academic and moral. On the former, the academic portion, believe it or not, you wouldn't have actually had to have technically graduated from high school to enter the university. Not in 1871, or even a few decades later, as George Gipp never graduated from high school either. However, the director of studies and the prospective student would walk through the student's previous educational attainments to determine what classes he would qualify for. Second, the director would ask each student to offer evidence of his good and positive moral standing. Perhaps some of us would have struggled with that one. I'm kidding, of course. But if you pass the quote-unquote smell test here, you would have been admitted to the university as a student. Can we count on you for the upcoming school year, he would ask. 
He would inform you that it begins the first week of September and it wraps up in late June. If you gave him a hearty handshake and said that you were in, well, you'd have to cough up the first installment of your tuition in the form of a $5 matriculation fee. So it's kind of like the modern day enrollment deposit. That $5 though, you were assured, would save your spot in the freshman class. So speaking on this front, just how much was a year of Notre Dame education back in 1871? After your matriculation fee, your base tuition, room and board was $150 a year. If your foreign language was Greek or Latin, that was included in the $150. However, if you were a French, German, Italian, Spanish, or Hebrew student, that would actually run you an extra $10. Those must have been the fancy languages. But there were also fees uh, for the fine and performing arts as well. That could have run you anywhere from $2.50 to $15 extra as well. But for all intents and purposes, let's say your total cost of attendance per year would be somewhere in the $175 range. Not bad. Let's think about inflation for a moment. $175 in 1871 was approximately $4,000 in 2021. For a little bit more context, the total cost of attendance today when it comes to tuition, room, board, and fees at the University of Notre Dame is a little over $76,000. The Notre Dame administration, though, was very explicit with what the expectations were for every student in terms of what they should bring to campus with them, which included the following. Here we go. Six shirts, four pairs of drawers, 12 pocket handkerchiefs, 12 pairs of stockings, six towels, six napkins, two hats, two caps, three pairs of boots or shoes, two suits of clothes for the winter, two suits of clothes for the summer, an overcoat, a table knife, a fork, a tablespoon, a teaspoon, combs, and brushes. So nothing terribly fancy there. Seems like really the essentials. In fact, according to Arthur J. Hope's Notre Dame, 100 years, the, quote, early students at Notre Dame were not renowned for their wealth. It was a school primarily for poor lads. Consequently, there were few fancy clothes. A boy grew accustomed to wearing plain and patched garments. His Sunday suit was kept carefully in the trunk room to be issued only on appropriate feasts. It was embarrassing to the authorities when the parents of a boy paid a surprise visit and found their offspring clad in shabby garments. Father Granger, to whom parents must apply when making a visit, was warned by the council to see that the object of such a visit was thoroughly combed and shined before the parents were allowed to see him." End quote. All right, so we've got our stuff, we're packing up, we're about ready to go to campus, but let's pick a major, shall we? Academic programs were neatly divided into four categories. Now, if you were to visit Notre Dame's campus at this time, it would not be a surprise to see, well, young boys, because Notre Dame was actually divided into basically three sections. There was the collegian section, kind of the one we're talking about. There was the preparatory, so high school, 
And then there was actually a minimum department for small boys. So theoretically, somebody could come to Notre Dame and stay there for multiple decades for education. And of course, the college would do that to generate additional income, but also create an enrollment funnel for the collegiate aspect of the campus. But anyways, back to the majors. So of note, many of the programs at Notre Dame actually required six years to finish the degree at this time, as opposed to the customary four. But there was the law department, which was, of course, for those aspiring to become lawyers, which had begun in 1869. There was the classical course, which included those most interested in foreign language, English, history, philosophy, or literature. Now, if I were a student at the college at this time, I probably would have sprung down this path. There was the scientific course, which was aimed for those most interested in fields such as trigonometry, astronomy, chemistry, geology, botany, or surveying. Most definitely not my interest, but perhaps some of yours. And finally, so again, we have the law department, we have the classical course, we have the scientific course, and then the commercial course. Whereas most of the other programs took six years of coursework, the commercial course was akin to the modern-day associate's degree, and it took only two years to complete. So this course was to bolster job readiness in areas such as bookkeeping, banking, shipping, commercial law, as well as basic classes in math, English, and geography. So there was that too. But at the end of the day, as I mentioned, Notre Dame wasn't churning out what would be considered intellectual students or scholars, but rather, according to the school newspaper, quote, good Catholic men for ordinary walks of life, end quote. All right, so we have picked, paid our enrollment deposit, we have picked out our academic major, and we have our bags packed with our pairs of drawers, knife, fork, spoon, etc. What now? Now, regardless of where you're coming to South Bend from, you would most certainly take a train to get there to report for classes. In fact, South Bend had been a rail hub since before the American Civil War. According to the South Bend Tribune, the Lake Shore and Michigan Southern Lines arrived in 1850, which ran from Chicago all the way to Buffalo, New York. Soon after, the Michigan Airline Railroad connected with the Michigan Central Railroad to connect South Bend as well to the entire state of Michigan and beyond. So the connectivity of South Bend, particularly to the northern part of the country, was very robust. And the lack of railroad accessibility may have also been a curtail to the average southern student attending the university to add what we were discussing before. If you were to pull a map of the railroads across the country in the 1870s, you will find that there were much more in the industrial north as opposed to the mostly agrarian south. So today, South Bend is a bustling city of over 100,000 people. But in 1870, that number was less than 7,500. But just as we mentioned a moment ago, the rail lines allowed for quick growth. And by 1880, the city had nearly doubled in size to over 14,000. But either way, in 1871, a small college in a fairly small city. So you arrive on campus, likely first by train, and then you hop on a carriage of some kind to take you into campus. The Notre Dame that you know and love today would not necessarily be fully present in the 1871 version, though it still has tons and tons of charm. 
The bulk of campus sat a stone's throw from the shoreline of the dual lakes on campus. Although, whereas today the campus has approximately 190 buildings, 150 years ago there was about, ooh, 15 or so. But there are a couple that still stand today. So the main entrance would have been in approximately the exact same spot. A student at this time would walk or carriage down that road, the one now known as Notre Dame Avenue. See Cedar Grove Cemetery on the left-hand side of the road. So yes, that cemetery that greets you essentially right when you pull into campus on the left-hand side was there even then, albeit with far fewer headstones. So let's continue our march down that path. Of course, modern-day sightings such as the bookstore, the Morris Inn, and Alumni Hall were most obviously not there. In fact, most of the campus buildings were situated just around the main administration building. But it's not the one we know and love today. It's not the one that has the incredibly prominent and picturesque golden dome on top. The 1871 version of the main building was most definitely the largest building on campus and built in 1865 was still a relatively new addition when we arrived six years later in 1871. And the building even featured a dome on the top with a sculpture of Mary. That actually might sound pretty familiar to you all. But the dome and sculpture did not have the shiny golden veneer. Rather, it was actually made of tin and then painted white. Sadly, the tin dome just doesn't have the same ring to it. And just as a note for posterity, that building actually burned to the ground in 1879. And the Golden Dome in the administration building that we know and love today began construction shortly thereafter. So smaller buildings, which contained the campus post office, an infirmary, which was staffed by the Sisters of St. Mary's, a small gymnasium, academic buildings, an outdoor recreation area kind of formed a neat quad around the front of the main building. A steam plant powered by water from the lakes was also located behind the main building which of course provided energy to the campus. And there was also a fairly large church. In fact, it was the largest in northern Indiana at this time. But you and the rest of the incoming freshmen heard that there were plans to construct an even bigger one. In 1871, one of the biggest developments on campus, yes, was that the construction had begun on a new church, which would be called the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. Notre Dame's founder and longtime president, Father Edward Soren himself, was there to lay the first cornerstone the previous May. The church is the same one that we enjoy today. Coincidentally, that baptismal font, which greets you when you walk through the front doors of the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, is from the year 1871. The replica of the grotto wouldn't be built for several decades. So as far as sleeping quarters, many students stayed in Brownson Hall, which stood behind the main admin building. So this was a structure that was built in 1855 and remained on campus as the second oldest building until it was demolished in early 2020. The residence halls were outfitted with the capability for hot showers. But the students, particularly during the warm months of the year, 
were expected to bathe in St. Mary's Lake. So there you go. The building known as Old College, which, if you were to visit campus today, sits near the grotto and directly next to the log chapel, was there in 1871. It absolutely was there in 1871 because, in fact, the building has been there since 1843, making it easily the oldest building on campus, built just months after Father Soren's initial arrival. Now, today, old colleges used to house folks studying to become priests. But then, well, it was pretty much used for anything and everything. All right, so hopefully we have a good sense of the lay of the land. But what would have been expected of us students? This is where, well, some of us may have been in trouble. Quite literally, in fact. Here are just a handful of the rules on the books, courtesy of the 1871 campus catalog. Here we go. All students are required to attend the exercises of public worship with punctuality and decorum. The time of recreation accepted, silence must be inviably observed in all places. The use of tobacco is strictly forbidden. Intoxicating liquors are absolutely prohibited. No one shall leave the university grounds without the permission of the president or the vice president. Any breach of pure morals, either in words or actions, must be reported forthwith. No one shall keep in his possession any money except what he receives weekly from the treasurer on Wednesdays at 9 o'clock a.m. Every month, all the students must write to their parents or guardians. All letters sent or received may be opened by the president or vice president. Whew. No book, periodical, or newspaper shall be introduced into the college without being previously examined and approved. Objectionable books found in the possession of students will be withheld from them until their departure from the university. Okay, okay, so a little stringent on the rules, perhaps. Not sure I could have survived all of them, but I don't know. Maybe I would have surprised even myself. Which segues into something perhaps a bit lighter. What would students do for fun on campus in 1871? Me personally, I'd probably spring on some nature walks like I do whenever I make it to campus. But two to six years worth of nature walks? That eh, may be getting a bit tiresome after a while. But just like today, most students find themselves involved in campus activities or campus clubs, then often called a society. I'm going to rattle off some of the societies, see if any of them happen to appeal to you. All right, so there was the Sodality of the Holy Angels. So those who decided they want to be servers or vespers during Mass. There was the St. Gregory Society. So those tasked with performing the music in church. Oh boy, how about the Holy Childhood Society? What do they do, you ask? Well, the organization, 33 members strong in 1871, devoted themselves as a, quote, charitable institution 
for the redemption of the children of infidels in China and other pagan countries, end quote. Yowza. I don't feel like I'm selling them very well. <laughs> so how about some non-religious clubs? There was also the Scientific Association for those budding scientists on campus. There was the Thespian Association, who put on campus stage and drama performances. On the musical side, Notre Dame had a very spirited cornet band and a junior orchestra as well. Oh, and there was also this school newspaper too, called the Scholastic. And this is a publication that is still in circulation today. The biggest campus event in 1871 was, by far and away, a visit from Mr. Salmon P. Chase, who had served as President Lincoln's Secretary of Treasury and, at the time in 1871, was actually the sitting Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So again, make no mistake, this was a very big deal. University President Father William Corby, yes, that Father William Corby, gave a spirited introduction to the occasion. And again, from Arthur Hope's centennial celebration of the college, quote, a Catholic university was not often the object of such benevolence. The students were duly impressed. After a formal address delivered by Mr. Tom O'Mahony, that's an Irish name, from Lake Forest, Illinois, the honorable gentleman spoke in this vein where Chase said, study diligently. I remember, with some regret, that I was not as devoted to my studies as I should have been. End quote. So yes, an A-list celebrity, if you will, makes his way to campus. But Alex, you may be thinking, I want to play sports. Give me some sports. All right, but like I said, we don't have football on campus in 1871. In fact, we are just two years removed from the very first college football game being played back in 1869. So it hadn't reached Notre Dame's campus yet and wouldn't for almost two decades. So aside from recreational swimming in the lakes, which I guess could also be called bath time, there was about 36 members of the boating team. There was actually two annual regattas or boat races each year, one in October and the other at commencement in June. The boating club had been established three years earlier in 1868, so there were three vessels in the boathouse. Are you ready for this, folks? There was the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. All right, so not super inventive nor original, but that's okay. As far as sport and recreation on campus, the absolute bee's knees was baseball. In 1871, there was actually seven different baseball clubs on campus. There was the Star of the West Club, the Star of the East Club, the Juanita Club, the University Nine, the Excelsior Baseball Club, the Young America Club, and the Pickwick Club. And guess what? Each of these clubs had at least two teams. So after making a quick count, there were 18 baseball teams on campus. 18. Not too shabby for a school of about 425. But why did they play baseball in such droves? Irish and German immigrants, who comprised large swaths of the student body, had been using baseball as a way to gain acceptance 
and assimilate to their new homes in America. And so when they got to the college campus, it was only natural. The game was picked up and played there as well. A lot of people didn't actually warm up to baseball for a long time since it was often considered an immigrant sport all throughout the 19th century. But in 1871, I am obligated to report that there was an actual future major leaguer on campus, a gentleman named Patrick Dillon. You can call him Packy, though. That's what he was known as around campus. And he suited up for the Juanita Club and the University Nine. Packy was a catcher, and he'd actually see action for the St. Louis Red Stockings in 1875, just a few years later. Future Hall of Famer Cap Anson, who is also famous for entirely different reasons, played at the school in the late 1860s. So, you don't like baseball? Well, too bad, you're playing. Lest you risk becoming a social pariah on campus. But uh, there you have it. I hope this uh, presentation, I suppose, has given you a good sense of what it would be like as a student at Notre Dame 150 years ago. And I'll be right back with Show Wrap. Folks, that was Project 1871. It was kind of a, an immersive experience, if you will, about what it was like to be a student at Notre Dame 150 years ago in 1871. And I can't lie to you, I've missed doing the show. It's been about three and a half weeks since I did the last episode, the one about Avery Davis. And this one took a little bit more time to put together than the average episode, other than it did take a lot of research, but... You know, uh, research is one thing, but sculpting it into a narrative that someone might actually stick around and listen to for about a half hour, that's kind of a different story. So I ended up finding a lot of really good stuff, and I didn't even include all of it in the episode. But it did feel like what was included really did help drive a narrative and hopefully paint a clear picture, if not anything else. Campus sure looked different, and boy, did it operate differently. But however... That spirit of Notre Dame transcends generations, and no doubt, with so many folks on campus that were there around the founding, like Father Soren, of course you had Father Corby, that had to have been a very, very special place, and I wonder if anyone knew just the greatness that that very humble, very modest university was destined for. I don't know. I'd have to think that even the founders probably would be just absolutely shocked by the impact and the force for good that school is and its students have shown to be uh, over the generations as well. But uh, yeah, so anyway, that was quite a labor of love to put together, and I hope it was a real treat for you all as well. I think it's a really important entry into the archives of the show, as we have covered a lot of different things throughout the entire history and archives of the show, but I don't think we've ever really immersed ourselves in this particular era for very long. You know, that pre-football era, sure, we did the founding of the school, but that was kind of leading up to the founding of the school more than the actual founding, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I really do hope you enjoyed it. And as a English historian, politician, writer, 
named John Dahlberg Acton once said, very eloquently I'd like to add, uh, history is not a burden on the memory, but an illumination of the soul. And I feel like that, that is a very appropriate sentiment for an episode just like this one. So, all right. Well, anyway, so I'd like to give a quick shout out again to the Consensus All-Americans. And that is, of course, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter from Fort Wayne, Indiana. If it were not for these gentlemen, the show would not go on. And also to our 2021 season sponsor, who could forget, WCScreens.com. Again, go to WCScreens.com. If you have any needs for screen printing or embroidery, my pal Tony and the rest of his team will absolutely take care of you, rest assured. WCScreens.com. If you're interested in sponsoring the show or become a consensus All-American yourself, hey, visit PayPal.me slash Onward to Victory for a one-time donation, or you can visit Patreon.com slash Onward to Victory podcast for ongoing monthly support. Please note that Either are incredibly, incredibly graciously appreciated and accepted. But if you're not in a position where you'd like to donate to the show or you just don't care to, hey, do me a quick solid. Share the episode. Review it. Give it five stars. Anything helps the cause. And I greatly appreciate you for tuning in and checking in and staying this long, frankly. So what's coming down the pike? I got a few ideas bouncing, and I know I shared them last episode, but I got a couple more, I suppose. So I'm going to rattle off some ideas if you feel particularly strongly about any of these or that you'd like to hear uh, from about any of these particular topics, uh, email the show at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com or head over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast and don't hesitate to drop the show a line. So perhaps the one that's really in the front of mind and I'll probably wait till after the season is over is I think us as Irish fans are having some hard or uh, having a difficult time, I think, contextualizing what Brian Kelly's legacy is at the University of Notre Dame, even though it's still ongoing. It's, of course, this, he's still the coach. But, you know, when he surpassed Coach Knut Rockne, all-time great in victories, a lot of people I know got very territorial at that point in time because I think some people meant that to mean that, well, that must mean Kelly's a better coach than Rockne. I don't necessarily think that's true, even though it's really, really difficult to compare because the eras are drastically different. But however, I think contextualizing Coach Brian Kelly's success at Notre Dame is kind of a difficult exercise. Uh, and if you're a fan of the show, if you're a longtime listener, you probably get a good sense that, yeah, you know what, I, I am a big Brian Kelly booster. I'm a big Brian Kelly backer. I think he's done an amazing job at Notre Dame. Now, granted, have we won every single game that I would like to have won? Well, of course not, but that's every program in the country. So, yeah, of course, you come up short in the occasional game, and at this point, it is the occasional game for Notre Dame. So I'm kind of working on something about how we can all kind of properly contextualize and possibly even embrace the legacy of Brian Kelly at Notre Dame. So that's coming, but I'll probably wait to see how this season ends. But I've been thinking about it more and more because, I don't know, maybe three, four games into this year, a lot of people were kind of pegging Notre Dame to finish 7-5, and five, possibly 8-4. and four. And, well, they just won their ninth game, so that's not going to happen. Except, except for that hiccup against Cincinnati this year, you know, they have really showed a lot of grit and a lot of determination. And I think it is incredibly admirable, the job that Brian Kelly has done this year in the face of very, very obvious adversity. So that one's coming down the pike. I'm not sure when, but it's coming. Uh, I was thinking about maybe doing another 
gridiron groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish about Clifton Brown, who was the first black quarterback in Notre Dame's history to start a game. I've also been doing a lot of research on early, well, kind of in the similar vein as this particular episode, some early Notre Dame history, so possibly an episode about the very first game in program history back in 1887, or perhaps some early Irish pro players around the turn of the century. Uh, There's also Jess Harper, who was the first athletic director at Notre Dame, but he was also Rockney's coach when Rockney was a player and did quite a bit of uh, innovating in his own right, such as the forward pass game, which is another kind of idea that I've got bouncing around in my head as well. Uh, You know, really telling the story of that 1913 Navy game where uh, Gus DeRay and Rockney, uh, DeRay was quarterback, Rockney was end, how they just absolutely shocked Army, ergo shocked the entire nation with the advent of the forward pass. And kind of just delving into that a little bit deeper because that is a really interesting story and a very interesting history. So again, got some things coming down the pike. So make sure you stick around and you're always checking for updates. I'll share them the absolute very best I can. So again, I'd like to thank the Consensus All-Americans for their contributions to the show. WCScreens.com, you for listening. And of course, Joseph Rakish as well, whose song Knut Rockney serves as our theme song at the beginning of the show. So go download it, go give it some spins, some streams, whatever, however it is that you digest music, you'll find it. Joseph Rakish, the song's called Knut Rockney. And with that, I believe I am going to sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, episode 53, Project 1871. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, friends, go Irish.